0: Thank you for tuning in to this Anniversary Series episode of Movie Geeks United. In this episode, we celebrate the 50th anniversary of Monterey Pop, the beloved documentary which covered the legendary three-day concert event. In this interview conducted in 2009 by Arenada Diaz of our sibling show Back by Midnight, filmmaker D.A. Pennebaker discusses the film's origins and production as well as the other compelling films that grace his resume. On the weekend of June 16th through the 18th, 1967, a group of musicians, including John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas and concert promoter Lou Adler, put together what would become known as Monterey Pop, a festival celebrating the San Francisco music scene and was sort of the kickoff, unofficial kickoff, of the Summer of Love. Acts included canned heat Big Brother and the Holding Company, Country Joe and the Fish, Al Cooper, Butterfield Blues Band, Electric Flag, Steve Miller Band, Moby Grape, The Birds, Eric Burton and the Dom, and, and the Animals, Booker T and the MGs, Robbie Shanker, Buffalo Springfield, Grateful Dead, and the American debut performances of Jimi Hendrix experience in The Who and the first major Public performances of both Janis Joplin and Otis Redding. It was a landmark music festival drawing up to 200,000 people over the weekend, and it would have gone down in history as just something to be remembered if it wasn't for the remarkable foresight of filmmaker D.A. Pennebaker and his team of filmmakers and sound technicians who captured the event and created the template for the rock concert documentary known as Monterey Pop. I spoke with filmmaker D.A. Pennebaker earlier this month about how he became kind of the unofficial go-to guy when it came to rock concert documentaries. His other credits include Ziggy Stardust and The Spiders from Mars and Depeche Mode 101. His political documentaries include The Landmark, The War Room, chronicling the presidential 1992 presidential campaign of Bill Clinton. He's a terrific filmmaker and has a lot of stories to tell. So... Here is my unedited, complete interview with filmmaker D. A. Pennebaker. What drew you to to filmmaking?
1: To filmmaking. Well, I was a uh, I was a, an engineer. I was studying engineering at college, and uh, uh, when I came out, I of course got a job as in an engineering company, and uh, I found that uh, I, I was kind of it was very boring because. You weren't asked to, to uh, design or make anything. You did everything out of a book uh, with, with uh, uh, numbers in it. So it was kind of, you designed a bridge by designing what, putting down what somebody else had already done years before. So I, I, I quit that job and I didn't quite know what to do. And then I, uh, a guy named Francis Thompson, who was a filmmaker, uh, showed me a film he'd been working on for many years. Called N Y N Y, which was a very abstract film. I think it, the Museum of Modern Art now distributes it. But uh, what I saw when I saw it, uh, I would kind of been wondering what I should do if I wasn't going to do engineering. And I uh, had half thought of writing and maybe even painting uh, because I really liked pictures. And when I saw the film, the the, the rough cut of what he had done. I knew right away that he'd done it by himself, that he hadn't had a big lot of people doing it, and that you I had no idea you could make a film by yourself. And when I saw that, uh, that was it. I never had any uh, further thoughts about anything from then on.
0: Well, in uh, one of your early credits I read, and I just find this totally fascinating, you have a screenwriting credit for one of Norman Mailer's movies, Wild Nighty?
1: Well, we didn't nobody wrote anything <laughs> norman invented it as we went along and i was filming it as he invented it so i suspect that somebody decided that was a creative <laughs> generality to say that i'd written it but uh, no there was no there was nothing right written on that uh, or almost any i i have tried to write things uh and uh you know they're, they're not bad they're okay but they're not nearly as interesting to me as things I find uh, as they were a discovery. And so uh, that's filmmaking to me is more going out without a script to find out what's there that can amaze you, that can really interest you.
0: Right. Well, well before we get to the documentary, I've got to ask one more Norman yep. Mailer question. What was that? How did you two... Hook up, and what was that uh, collaboration like with Mailer? Who was trying to uh, he was trying to do the free form style of writing. He was trying to translate that to uh,
1: into film, yeah, to
0: film. And some some would argue uh, uh, not very well. And a lot would argue unsuccessfully.
1: Well, you know, the thing about Norman is, no matter whether you disagreed with him or not, he was so inventive and so interesting. That you, you kind of didn't want to be. You wanted to be around to see what he would do, what would happen, and that interested me because as a filmmaker, I thought you know the thing that films lack. Uh, they have they have a certain kind of brand of person that that t- tends to make them. So they're all kind of similar. They're like magazine stories, you know, they're magazine fiction. It all has has this kind of arc of beginning, middle, and end that's so similar that you almost can't tell one from another. And what I thought, in filmmaking, if you could get somebody like Norman, who's kind of a renegade, you know, and and ready to burn forests behind him, if you could get him interested in making a film, uh, it would be an interesting film. So, but I had known him slightly. That is, in New York City, if you're in a certain group you always run into certain people either in bars or parties or elsewhere and uh he had a friend that worked with him uh Jose Torres who was a boxer that I knew too that that I liked very much he was he wasn't trying to teach me boxing but he showed me what boxing was like a little bit and what it did to you as a person anyway when norman uh called me one day uh and he was doing uh uh, a, a play downtown at the uh, at this theater way down in the village, the Theater de Lis, I think it was, and he said that uh, and he he was in a bar with Buzz Farber, uh, who was the guy that worked with him, and they said, you know, they were they were doing this funny spiel uh, in which they 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 would talk to each other as if they were not really. Uh, memorized lines, but kind of lines that you'd make up as you went along to show a certain attitude. Uh, I mean, they were... uh, I I had no idea what they were. They were clearly not... They weren't really talking to each other. They weren't... uh, They were listening to each other, but they weren't informing each other about anything that that seemed to me you, you could get your hands on. So I listened for a while, and then Norman said, you know, what we're doing is... We do this thing all the time in, in, in bars and we pretend uh, we're the Gallo brothers or we pretend we're somebody and we try to talk not so much the way they talk because they weren't trying to imitate an Italian uh, 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 you know, mafioso right. person, but they were trying to uh, kind of set up an image of what their world was like. Uh, which is peculiar, and I, I, that's not probably a very good description, but it intrigued me. And then Norman said, "We'd like to make a film with you." And I had already made uh, "Don't Look Back," which had had some success, right. although uh, hard, hard gathered, I'll tell you, because nobody would distribute it in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so they they said, "Why don't we do a film?" So I said, "Well, let's experiment first, because it, it's it's a little complicated, and I'm not sure." that I see how to do it, but I had a loft, and we blacked it out and put some lights in it, and Bob North and I, Bob North did the sound with Anagra, and I did a camera, and one night, Norman and, and Buzz and another guy, who's a friend of ours, who's an actor, the three of them did this, and, and it was later called Wild Nighty, uh, and exactly what it was, I was never sure, because they. it was clear they weren't trying to imitate of the Gallo brothers as such it wasn't put on as a piece of theater about the Gallo brothers it was really norman mailer pretending to be not norman mailer or or and be somebody else who it was is not totally clear but in the course of it uh it i found it really interesting because you had to film you know them as if they were actors as if there was a script when in fact there was no script. So you had to kind of figure out where they were leading each other and who was going to answer next and, and what how much time you were going to give it with the camera before you uh, went back to the other. In other words, you, it was a whole piece of theater that the camera had to figure out as well as they did. And in the course of it, at the end, Norman uh, looked at me and proceeded to make up a poem right in front of the camera, which really startled me. I had never had anybody do this before, and I remember as he t- went I thought well I' gotta do something to make this a little dramatic so I sort of circled him with the camera and he turned as he went and finished the poem on camera and i I had no idea whether this was a piece of good movie making or whether this was a good poetry poet poem or 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 anything. It just was so New to me and so interesting that I kind of got intrigued, and from then on we did a couple more similar, but but much more complicated attempts at doing this.
0: Right. Well, let me ask you this: you brought up uh, the Bob Dylan film, Don't Look Back. What, in what came first in your interest, music, or politics? Because these those two topics seem to be the overriding yeah. themes in your documentaries. What what came first were you
1: well I, I think I'm like anybody uh I'm interested in what's going on at the time you know if it was if there was a political uh rhubarb going on uh I was intrigued by it and and talked to other people about it and we thought you know we uh, I, I tried to venture what each of us kind of thought about what was going on or if it was music uh i, I just like everybody else, I had records and I listened to them although my records tend to be older i was really into jazz and uh, i had a a lot of 78 records of uh, of jazz from the 20s and 30s which sure. i listened to a lot with with my roommates we all listened to that music benny goodman fletcher henderson that was what we listened to at night as we drank beer and stayed up all night uh so when albert grossman came and asked me if i wanted to make a film uh, with bob dylan i'd heard of bob dylan i I think I might have even heard one of his songs on the radio, but I certainly was not familiar with him. And this was not music that I listened to a lot. Uh, I I didn't hesitate. I said, okay. Uh, He asked me if I'd like to go along with him to England and and make a film with, with his client, Bob. And I said, sure. And it was sort of as simple as that. I didn't think it through much. I didn't know what to expect. Uh, but i it was again it was like going into the unknown with a camera to see what I find right and it wasn't that I was interested in the music itself, but since Bob was a musician, that was the way it had the film had to be structured along musical lines but i didn't want to make it a musical film uh although i i, I wasn't sure what a music- i for me a musical film was uh you know something like uh uh, Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers, or even my favorite was the, who was the guy that uh, uh, oh he was the he married all the beautiful actresses in, in Hollywood before he was through. Uh, oh, uh, he had a wonderful wry voice.
0: Right, right, right. I know. I know who you're talking
1: and, about. And he would sing in a lot of his films, which were all about. He was. He kind of looked like a twelve-year-old in some ways. Uh, I just can't remember his name now. But he. Uh, Uh, The the, the films were always about the high school was going to have a big show or a dance. and uh, In the end, he and Judy Garland were...
0: Mickey Rooney. That's
1: it, Mickey Rooney. I loved the way Mickey Mickey Rooney sang, and I liked the way he approached music, which was kind of, uh, you know, it was like he was illiterate in music. He just sort of made it up as he went along. And I liked that quality, so I kind of looked for it in Bob because I had no idea how accomplished a musician was or anything else. But you could see that he that he that was a thing he had a sense of how to do. That he didn't it didn't occur to him that he wasn't doing it right.
0: But and um I'm curious about the I uh gotta ask about Don't look back real quick and that when you were making it I mean it's been it's now obviously forty plus years later since it came out and it's been revered and it's like people study it meticulously and uh, oh yes
1: they write long theses about it long theses there's
0: the there's that great section in the the Todd Haynes movie I'm not there That's basically a uh, a reinterpretation of it and so I'm curious when you were making it when you were in the moment were you at all ever did you ever have a moment awareness of you know this is something a little more than than just chronicling Bob Dylan on this tour or did that did well, all that awareness just come later, when the, after the movie was out?
1: You know, you, you, you do as you're doing anything. It Whether it's a, a painting your house or fixing your car, you know, you have moments of wondering, what am I doing here? Why am I doing this? Why is this subject to my doing as opposed to anybody else's? And uh, in the course of, of of filming Dylan, I was. I had been very aware and interested in a a copy of Byron's letters. Well, they were letters to and from Byron, uh, which an English guy had published, and it was called the Pisan Chronicles. Mm-hmm. And it had to do with Byron fleeing England because he had kicked out. Uh, there was a nasty divorce or somebody was suing him for raping their daughter, or I don't know what, what it was, but he, he left England probably forever, and went to live in Italy with uh, Shelley. Mm-hmm. And the two of them set up in this big household a kind of... Uh, uh, it, was, it was a little like San Francisco. All the, 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 the heavy hitters, the Trelawney and people like that in England, would come down there to hang out, because that was where the action was for them. And so, it, it it he became a kind of star, a rock star, abroad. And it, it, the thing that that was interesting. Was he? He was a person who, when he was younger, was not very good looking and had a club foot of some sort. He had a foot that he had to limp on. But when he was the rock star, he had shoes made that made him limp even more. In other <laughs> words, he took everything a little further than than it, than it was, and he made it interesting to people. There was a kind of poetry about it. And he, of course, he was a major poet. That it turns out, he was the last, probably the last great poet. From then on, the the Russians came in and started writing these knockouts uh, novels, as did the French. And poetry was no longer uh, what everybody had to buy. Every every you know was uh, they, they started buying novels, and mm-hmm. so he was kind of the end of some sort of period. And I. I I kind of saw that in Dylan, uh, that Dylan marked the end of a certain kind of music which everybody got used to. And it was perfectly good music, you know. It was, uh, it, was it was all the music that was in uh, Broadway shows or on the hit parade on radio. Whatever. And it, it was all kind of moon, June. And sometimes it was well played by great artists. Or- you know, terrific bands uh sometimes it was written by uh, Gershwin and people who were really good songwriters. There was nothing wrong with it, but it never was very important to you. It was something you just listened to and suddenly, here a guy was coming along who said, "Look out, your life depends on this," mm-hmm. and it had to do with the sixties with the Vietnamese War, with a lot of things that had never. Been made that never were public before. I mean, people, you know, didn't get excited about uh, things like that the way they suddenly did in the in the 60s. I mean, the kids were willing to kill, have themselves shot, or flee to Canada and re, and reject their country forever. And that was kind of a, a new thing for this country. And suddenly here was this music that was seen that that was somehow about it. And Dylan was the progenitor of that. He was the godfather of that. He said, if it's important to you, make a song about it, not if you can make a popular song and make money. And it was kind of the opposite to what the Beatles were doing. And the Beatles were so intrigued by Bob that they started trying to do it too. I mean, everybody sort of tried to do it. And what's interesting is how long Dylan has been able to capture the central position of that kind of music, it still baffles me. I'm intrigued, and I don't think it has to do with the film particularly. I think the film was simply I was there when somebody was doing something that's now history, and so everybody wants to know what happened. And they have, all they have is a few films and a few things that have been said or sung. But it, I was fortunate to be there. I, I don't think I had any special insight. Into filmmaking because I'd never studied filmmaking and I'd learned it all on my own, but I think Dylan gave me a sort of perch on which to, to to try to leave out what wasn't important and leave in what was, and that, of course, is always what good writing or music is about.
0: Right. Well, and was it from the Bob Dylan documentary that you got? Monterey Pop, how did that no, keep... No, Monterey uh, Pop
1: had, was was the almost the opposite of that, uh, in which I didn't want to have any uh, social connections with anybody. I wanted to be pure music. I didn't want to interview anybody. I didn't want to find out anything about g- drugs or what kids were thinking or any. That was for some other kind of filmmaking. I wanted this to be like you put on an LP record and you... Get a huge glass of beer, and you sit down and you just listen, and you listen to why Hendrix is not like uh, 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 Otis Redding. You know what, what what each of them knows and what each of them can do, and you just listen to that. So I wanted the the film to be a very existentialist kind of film that you only found out about each song as it went along.
0: Right. Well, and um, it, well, so at from what I've read, Monterey Pop was pretty quickly put together. I think it was a seven-week, you know, it was like seven weeks from the idea to when the festival took place.
1: Yeah, it was, well, Lou Adler and John Phillips really uh, put it together. I mean, I somebody called me up, actually, who had later had nothing to do with the thing, and said, would I be interested in doing a film about a music festival in California? And at that point, there was a film going around called Endless Summer, which people thought was about surfing. And when I went to see it, I realized it had very little to do with surfing. It was about California. It was about, uh, you know, the Beach Boy language, whatever it was. It was something everybody wanted to find out more about. So the idea of going to California really intrigued me. I'd never much been there before in my life. So the idea of making a film there about something as, abstract as music was I thought was a terrific idea.
0: And um I guess I ask about a few of the performances and if you have a memory or, or what do you remember logistics. Sure.
1: I remember it all very well. Well as well as uh, as you can remember that long <laughs> right. ago.
0: Well I, I got asked on uh, top of, of the Otis Redding performance which is which is not only the the highlight for me anyway, it's the highlight of the movie, but I mean it's it's one of those iconic moments. Otis Redding became a star, literally. Yeah,
1: and, and then went into the lake. Right. So,
0: what what do you remember of, of recording that performance? And and like those occasional moments when you, you don't know something. But but did you know when you were recording Otis Redding that you know this is this is going to be something special?
1: Well, I hope so. Dylan and I had gone to see Otis at the go-go in uh, Los Angeles and that was the first time I heard him in person and he had those fantastic group behind him with those horns and it was was incredible and then he came over to the table and Dylan said I'll write a song for you which in fact he did later he wrote uh, I I forget which one it was but Otis never recorded it uh, either because he wasn't alive anymore or, or he just never got a chance you know who records what is is decided in small, smoky rooms somewhere, not at tables in the go-go. But uh, when I heard him, I thought he's fantastic. But, you know, I didn't think of him being at at that festival because I thought this is going to be pretty much a white bread festival. You know, it's Los Angeles hotshots and San Francisco hotshots kind of meeting and duking it out somewhere not going to be a huge – I mean, nobody had ever really filmed a festival as far as I knew before. I at least never had seen one, Mm -hmm. uh, except I had seen bits of the festival that was done years before uh, at Newport, but it was a jazz festival in which, uh, what I remember, I saw chunks of it, and I don't know why they were chunks of it. I don't know why I never saw the whole film. Because uh, it was music that did interest me But they, they didn't play whole songs uh, the, They played parts of songs Or bits of riffs and things And uh, So I thought Well this is like uh, the, the, the You know the heart of the concerto it's not, You're not going to Be benefit from seeing the whole thing Because they don't want to take the time to do it So unless you went to the movie You're never going to know what happened there right. And in this case I thought What I want to do with uh, and and I remember going up there with John and uh, uh, and 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 Lou and uh, sort of it was a it was a place where they had uh, horse shows and uh, uh, farm fa- fairs there you know it was it was not a big uh, arena or anything and they sort of put up a stage and, uh, and they had enough space to put a lot of seats mm-hmm. so they had. I think they could uh, four or five thousand people. Uh, I don't think it didn't seem to me they were going to have many more than that. So it seemed like a reasonable arrangement, and you'd have enough audience to have the 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 bands could play to them. So it it would sort of work. And so I just went up with five or six people that I knew who all listened to music. Uh, They were basically as close to being musicians as you could be, but they also. Knew how to run a camera, which seemed to be a better idea than trying to teach cameramen uh, about the music, and uh, and we just sort of took off every morning, and and everybody went wherever they were going to go. I think I had Mal Maisels with me, and uh, 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 Jim Desmond, and Nick Proferris, and uh, Ricky was there. Uh, there was quite, you know, we we just sort of hung out with everybody, and then we shot each performance in a very reasoned way i mean i had only so much film that i i knew i couldn't shoot every performance of every song
2: right i just i
1: i didn't have i couldn't afford to and uh, it was unclear exactly how much what the budget was they had said just make a film and and they didn't know john and lou really didn't know what the cost of filmmaking was (laughs) <laughs> uh, and most people didn't because we didn't do it the way it would be done right. classically. Uh, we we just uh, – each person had a camera and a person tied to him with an agra and uh, as much film as he could carry, and he just went out and shot. And when he ran out of film, he had to come back and, and cry until like, somebody gave him some more film.
2: Right.
1: So it was kind of a uh, – a, 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 it was sort of an uncertain that way – uh, to proceed but i didn't know any other
2: right. and,
1: and and generally it 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 it's amazing I was amazed at how well it worked
0: mm-hmm. well one of, one of another one of my favorite performances and it 's not in the film it it, it, it
2: became,
1: but you know when you were talking about the otis, it, there was that moment when I kind of lost him in the in the in the lines in the lights right. and uh, you know i i i i can't I can never fully explain why I I, I did that, uh, and I know Robbie came down from uh, uh, Woodstock and complained to me about why why was I drifting away from Otis when I could be filming his face, you know? What? And I I didn't. But you know that was I when I edited that was when he was killed, and I remember looking at it and thinking, you know, there must have been some reason for doing this. I beyond me. And so I left it in the film. I didn't cut it out of the film. And a number of people, who I don't know what they were, they're some sort of religious people of some sort, who said they could see in that uh, something of the future in in that he was going to die. Right. Which was really bizarre. You know, I certainly had no intention of of being the person who did that, but there was it was a funny thing to do and normally i would have cut it right out of the film because we had four cameras shooting and we could have easily done it but i left it in and at the time there was a lot of people that thought it was very bad taste you know that that i would do this but later everybody got to like it and pretty soon people were doing it in other films so it had some funny aspect that drew people to it
0: and uh like I, like I said, one of my favorite performances, and it's not in the film. It, it's now uh, an extra, one of the on the on the Blu-ray and the DVD. Uh, Al Cooper, which was uh, a midday right. Saturday performance. Yeah, and, uh, I know. I'm curious about that. And uh, when, when, I'm curious when you saw that, you know, when when you were making this, putting together the the extras for the DVD. Yeah. Did you ever at the time? Did you ever think you know this probably could have gone in the film?
1: Yeah, it it could have, and I. I still am not sure why. I was making that film very fast. Uh, I wanted to – I don't know what, what was I, – I think we, we didn't have any money. We were doing it all on our uh, – kind of on our credit cards, in fact. So it probably – I was trying to get the thing out as fast as I can. And nobody knew quite what, it's, what it was going to be. Uh, ABC had funded it or funded the festival – under the with the understanding that they were going to be able to run this on the air, and that that uh, what uh, Tom Moore's favorite young American couple, John and, and uh, Michelle, uh, <laughs> would somehow be the, the, the hostesses and host of it, uh, it didn't work out because when when they saw Jimi Hendrix, they said, "No, no, nah, you can't go on the air. We can't do that," uh, and and they were right. For for their audiences, Jimi Hendrix was very uh, was was over the top. Right. So they they turned it down as a TV show, and we were stuck with having to try to get our money out of it that we put in in shooting and in editing it. And so I blew it up to 35. Uh, we got the uh, we got a couple of lawyers that worked out an arrangement whereby we would uh, have the theatrical ownership of the film. For some, and I don't remember what it was. Uh, but Lou, at the time, Lou said that somebody, one of the bookkeepers, had run off with all the cash from the show, so <laughs> he couldn't pay me any more anyway. So he was happy to dump it. I think at the time because he didn't think anything was going to come of it. And so we 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 finally put it out and, uh, and distributed it ourselves. We couldn't get a distributor to even look at it. You know, they they said nobody's going to go to a film with just music in it. There's no reason for that. So we put it out, and, of course, it was a big success right away because everybody hung out, and they would sit there smoking their tokes and looking at this stuff. And the theaters, we had a couple of old porno houses, one in New York, and it ran for a year there. You know, it just, <laughs> they, they couldn't stop it. And it was kind of marvelous because it, it really confused the people who understood about how film distribution worked. Because this wasn't the way it was supposed to be, and but from then on we got, we got a group of theaters all over the country that were ready to anything we did, and so when we did keep on rocking up in Toronto, they all put up money for it.
0: Well, and, and speaking of, of the you know the you know people saying you know who's going to come and see this? It's just music. I got to assume you probably were a little amused in the back of your head when when you you had seen. Both Jimi Hendrix and the Who, and you realize—I'm sure when you were filming them, you realized—you know—this is not just music. These two guys—it right. was are... theater.
1: It was incredible theater. That was the—that's what people of the music business were all record dealers or whatever. So they didn't get to see much theater, and musicals on Broadway were quite quite different. You know, they were very studied and very. C- 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 very uh, orderly they didn't make any they didn't dare to do anything or have anything fail. everything had to be absolutely worked out right and this was just a complete uh it was like fireworks you know and and, and that I think was interesting for people to see on a the screen they uh, hadn't seen this much in in movies so it was uh, I, that, that audience was a fantastic audience all over the country and all over the world. Uh, people, it was it played everywhere in the world.
0: Yeah, and, um, and uh I guess in a weird way, it kind of it, in an in an odd way, Monterey Pop, the one-two punch of Don't Look Back and Monterey Pop, kind of solidified you as this kind of go-to person to you know if if you
1: if you, you wanted to waste a- money on film, we were the people to see.
0: Yeah, but you know, if you you know, if you want, if you're a musician and you're yeah. up and coming and and you want some cachet, you know, they all said Pinnebaker, whether it's, you know, David Bowie with Ziggy Stardust or the yeah. Depeche Mode, and I'm sure you know, considering uh, that you were kind of you know a little older, you know, elder statesman to the kids, if you will, I'm sure that that must have kind of tickled you that you know, that well, you were it
1: just, was it was it was interesting. I mean, I. When we did Depeche Mode, a lot of people said, how can you do this this silly band? Sure. You have done Bob Dylan, you know. what?" And what they don't realize is we that was one of the best films we ever We loved doing that film. It was a neat film to do and really uh, more fun than almost any other film I've done because all of us were involved in it all the way. And it was like
2: – it was
1: quite – so different from it and we wanted it to be like an MGM musical like The Wizard of Oz or something you know mm-hmm. and that was such a crazy thing to try to do but it worked uh, and, and in a funny way the band just loved the idea of doing it that way and we became great friends you know uh, ever since
0: and uh, i got to ask two, two more quick questions one I, I got to ask about Ziggy Stardust and Yeah. So what was what was that experiment like? I mean, you here you are you you've, you know with Dylan and Monterey Pop, and so you, you know that all that that period of music was very transformative, and then here comes the next kind of generation of of uh, of new type of music, and it's yeah. very gender bending and very and also also upsetting the status quo.
1: Well, I you know it, we, we we got called on by RCA that had invented this new uh, video disc. It was like a uh, I forget what it was called now, but it was an attempt to have uh, a a disc that played uh, pictures. Uh
0: like oh, this is like pre-laser disc. Yeah,
2: before. yeah,
1: pre-laser disc. And they wanted a band. Uh, they wanted somebody to be on it to to sort of help promote it. And since they had a contract with David, uh, or could get one I mean they 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 did publish this music and mm-hmm. r- distributed it. So uh they asked me to make a half hour film uh for use on this uh laser disc or whatever it was not called a laser disc either. Right. It was called something else. And uh, uh that I would do this and, and that would be it. And I was doing something else. Actually I was on a raft in the Mississippi making a film on a bunch of uh theatrical people from Antioch who were putting on a play down the Mississippi, and that was kind of all engrossing. I didn't have a lot of time off the off the rafts, so at first I said no, I, I couldn't do it. And then they came back and said no, you've got to. It's really important, and it's David Bowie. And I wasn't really sure who David Bowie was. Uh, I, I thought he was another person, actually, the guy that did glam, the glamor rock. Uh, what was it yeah. called? Uh, uh, Oh God! He was a friend of Bowie's, uh, but,
0: but <laughs> oh Lou Reed.
1: No, 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 no. This is a Brit. Uh, oh okay. Uh, anyway, Bolan, Mark Bolan.
0: Oh okay, okay, yeah. I thought it was Mark
1: Bolan, and I thought, gee, that's great. I'd love to see him. I can hardly wait because I really loved the that he did this something or other. This was called Glitter Rock, and I'd heard about it, but I hadn't seen it. So I, I, I did. We flew there, but when we got there, there was uh, some strike of the airline, so we was a wild Getting there, it was very hard, and we got there the day before the last concert of the. We didn't know he was going to do. Uh, it was we got there on a Friday night or something, so there was going to be a Saturday concert and then a Sunday concert, and what we didn't know was then he was going to call it quits and he was going to announce it at the Sunday concert, and nobody really knew. Uh, 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 they, none of the band knew that this was going to be the last concert. Uh, I I assume RCA may have known, but we didn't. So we went to the Saturday night show, and we shot a few things just to make sure so we could, if we had to alter the lights, that they were going to be bright enough. or I didn't know. Uh, But when I saw the show, I thought, this guy is, this is incredible. Uh, This is a movie. This guy, because it wasn't, he, 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 what he did was so beautifully uh, kind of designed. I mean, he, he designed every note, every move he made. He was a consummate uh, performer. And I thought, if we can do this as raw as we can make it so that it looks like some crazed lunatic with a camera got on stage to shoot it, uh, it would come off, you'd see some of the energy that's involved in it. It wouldn't just be a, a, a beautifully sort of presented program, mm-hmm. and so I, we put signs in the in the lobby of the theater that night saying, "Bring your cameras with the uh, with the flash bulbs and use them as much as you want," which normally theaters don't let you do. Uh, so for the p- performance, it was great. It had these flash bulbs going off all the time, which was just <laughs> fantastic. And then there were just three of us shot it because I was well, only expecting to do a half-hour show. Nobody, RCA, wasn't interested in doing a movie. And so I shot the whole performance and brought it back and and blew it up to 35 and made a, a film out of it, which, in fact, we let uh, one of the networks, I think it was uh, ABC, but it might have been RCA. Run on the air without even getting releases from the music or anything. <laughs> put it on the air, and it was fantastic success, so I knew there was a film that could be distributed there, so I made it, and David came and looked at it, and he liked it, and he came over and helped us mix it. He spent about two months here mixing with us, and we got a film together, and then we released it and it was a, uh you know a lot of people say, God, I can't believe how badly shot that film is." <laughs> and and in a way, I guess they're right, you know. It, it, right. But it's got such energy and it's so sexy. People right. go to it and they come and they say, "God, that film is amazing." And it, 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 if we'd done it in the in the old traditional way, I think it would have been a little boring. Right. I. I but I don't know. David is is never boring. So it, that, <laughs> it, it's just I just like the way it looked and I like the way and it's all him. There's hardly anybody else in it.
0: And just to, to switch gears, now this is my last question. Yeah. I got to ask because uh, you know the War Room is one of the great documentaries of the last 20 years. It, it, I, I you know at the t- when it, when the War Room came out, I think you know people liked it and they liked kind of the inside look. But I, I think seeing it now, I don't think they realize how uh, profound, how profoundly insightful the War Room is. And so I'm curious with this past election cycle. Um uh,
2: yeah.
0: and it's almost where where the war room was in at a crucial moment of change in, in the first uh election of Clinton in this last election cycle, which was another monumental uh change in political policy. I yeah. was yeah. I was wondering what, how you felt about, you know, that that the uh, the mirror imaging of the war room and, and then the things you've done recently for well, I, I, I
1: think Uh, Again, we did a follow-up to the war room in the last election Mm -hmm. where we went to see what had happened to all the people who had been in the war room, Mm -hmm. Uh, Stan Freeberg of FEMA, all the the people that we had known, uh, uh, James Carville, uh, even uh, Mary Madeline, uh, and we, we wanted to sort of get them to, I don't know, remember what that was like in the in as things were now at the at, at time so it was kind of a, a, a an interesting experiment it was more of an interview film than a than a real uh, action movie but i think what was interesting to me was that people who had seen the war room and and could see that it was a new way to 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 do uh political filming uh where instead of you of, of somebody pr- uh, pronouncing what was wrong or right politically, you got the people who made things happen. You saw what what they were like, what they how they reacted to just normal things in their lives, and you began to understand a little bit how politics could work—not the way it always worked, but the way it could work if if people really cared about it and were interested in 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 whatever change was possible. And so I think. Uh, they made a film. Uh, the, uh, well, a person we knew who was very uh, uh, moved by the war room, who you know, it, it influenced by it, made Amy. Oh uh, God, okay, I can't remember. Uh, did a film uh, on uh, Obama, oh. and, and there was a couple of other people who did films on people running, and I think that they were somewhat conditioned by the way the war room worked. I don't know. I haven't seen the Obama film. I think HBO did it. Right. And it's going to be released soon, I guess, sometime. Uh maybe theatrically too. I don't know what the arrangements are for it. But the idea uh, that it changed the way people uh, looked at politics was interesting to me because the old way where, you know, uh, uh, President Taft would get up and make a speech and a lot of people would clap is it, not very informative historically. <laughs> I mean, you get – you know, only so much of that will – will keep you alive.
0: I guess you could say with the, the that first that that ninety two election campaign with Clinton
1: yeah.
0: versus Bush, you are really seeing that Taftian approach to politics uh represented by George Bush and Bill Clinton kind of as as kind of what we've been talking about, there's a little bit of theater in, yeah. in that in yeah. that and that yeah. seems to have gone that seems to be also I guess you could say Going back to the the Bob Dylan film, there seems to be a uh, uh, a changing of the guard going on in, in the war room.
1: Well, I I guess so. I for 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 me, all my all the films I've ever done are really come out of of my love of theater. You know, mm-hmm. going to a theater and sitting in a seat and watching somebody enact something uh, and understanding that. You're not seeing the real people in this story take take part in it. You're seeing people who understand what they were up to and know how to project it, to make you hear it and think about it. And that that movies could do that beyond what the theater could do. It could go to the original people. But it wasn't enough to go to the people who had, let's say, done some deed and then could tell you about it, and all their relatives could tell you how smart they were. And after a while, you got second-hand information, even though it was done with the best of uh, hope, that you could actually, if if you were lucky and looked around, you could be in the room when the thing happened, and that that's what movies were extraordinary at doing. Nothing else could do that, and nothing else had ever done that. That for the first time you could watch a guy who was who was running somebody for president call up somebody and make a move that was going to generate some real interest and maybe make make the thing work. You could watch it happen right in front of you. That is such an incredible thing that I I couldn't imagine doing it any other way. Enacting it later or writing a script about it, it seems to me uh, it could be terrific and uh, some some people are really good at that, but to me, the most interesting thing is being there when it happens.
0: Well, Mr. Pinenbaker, I know I kept you longer than I said I would. I want to thank okay. you. It, 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 it uh, couldn't say it better, and I didn't even get to talk about uh, uh, Chris Haggis's startup.com. dot oh, well,
1: which, which com. Chris, Chris, of course, is my partner, and yes. almost all the films I've made since the, since uh, God since uh, a company. Uh, or, or or the uh, Ziggy w- w- have been made with her, so she's just as much a part of these filmmaking uh, efforts as, as I am. You know.
0: Well, well please tell her uh, Startup.com. I think is one of the great documentaries of the yeah. decade. It's, that's her uh, film. Yeah. That's it's. it's uh, I don't think people realize how prophetic that film is. Uh,
1: no, that's a marvelous film, and I think also. I like the uh, the Al Franken film. I thought it was a terrific film.
0: Oh, it's terrific
3: stuff. Hey, Joe, where you going to go.